Hi, everyone. I'm Nicole Pettit, and as Chris said, I'm an assistant professor at YSU in the English department's program for linguistics and TESOL, which is teaching English to speakers of other languages. So to start off, you're actually really here to hear from these um, wonderful professionals. So to start us off, could you each please introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your professional capacities? Sure. Thank you, Nicole. It's great to be here, everybody. Um, I do a lot of panels, and I have to say this is one of the more unique ones, and it's really a great idea to use a book as a catalyst for discussion. So thank you very much, Thrive Mahoning Valley and uh, Lit Youngstown, uh, Susie's and the City Club, and all the great people that put this together. Thank you. Um, I am the executive director of OLA Ohio, which is a grassroots Latino organization. We work to empower the Latino community through community organizing, advocacy, leadership development, and civic engagement. And in fact, about uh, 10 days ago, we signed a lease for a small office here in Youngstown. So we'll be doing some work here as well with all of the great uh, partners and collaborators that we've met. So thank you. Hi, I'm Erin Femister. I'm the Director of Youth Services and Programming for the Public Library of Youngstown and Mahoning County. Uh, as a public librarian and as an organization in our community, we seek to find ways to inspire, connect, and enrich people's lives through literature and other services. And so we were thrilled to be chosen uh, as an NEA Big Read grant recipient, and we're so excited to be a part of this conversation, and the, the book is a catalyst. So we're thrilled to be here for our first event, and I'm excited to hear, hopefully, from all of you once you've read the book to find out what you thought. My name is Violeta Aguirre. I am a, I'm the Catholic, um, I'm sorry, the uh, <laughs> Catholic Charities um, Hispanic Outreach Coordinator. And um, I have basically started just in May to um, understand the needs of Hispanics in the Youngstown area. And we're actually trying to reach out to Hispanics in the Tri-County area. But um, we have um, actually been able to reach a lot of people in Youngstown. We're still hoping to reach people in Trumbull and... Um, some in Colombiana as well, but we, uh, we're doing a lot of work to try and see how we can help Hispanics in our area. Great. Thanks so much to all of you. So as the description for this event mentioned, and as you pointed to, Erin, um, the catalyst for our discussion tonight is related to this book by Luis Urrea. Um, and programming, larger programming related to the NEA Big Read. So I'm hoping that you can provide some context for us and tell us what is the NEA Big Read. And I believe that you have a statement that the NEA requires you to share with us. They, ha they have a few points they'd okay. like us to, to remind everyone of. But uh, just to give some background, um, the NEA Big Read is a grant funded through Arts Midwest that seeks to broaden our understanding of our world, our communities, and ourselves through the joy of sharing a good book. And they have several different books that they recommend, and there are 78 communities that are participating in Big Reads with various titles. And uh, Youngstown is one of only two in Ohio that was selected, and we're very thrilled, and we're one of a select number that is using 
um, Into the Beautiful North as our book, and we felt that it was a book that really... It talks about a community that is coming together and dealing with a diaspora, and it's, you know, solving their problems from within in unique ways. And we thought that 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 kind of fit with Youngstown. So that was part of why we selected the title. And on top of that, uh, Lit Youngstown, who is a partner with us in this grant, uh, Karen Schubert has heard Mr. Uriah speak, and she thought he was just such a dynamic speaker. So we're thrilled to be focusing on his book and then to be bringing him to the library on October 15th. So, um, And on top of that, something to keep in mind, reading reduces stress, so we're hoping to just help our community <laughs> relax and enjoy themselves. That's great. Um, so some of the folks in our audience might not have read Into the Beautiful North by Urrea yet. I'm wondering if you can provide us with a short synopsis without spoiler alert, without any spoilers. I will do my best. Okay. Um, so Into the Beautiful North is its kind of one of those epic quest novels. And unlike some of the other ones, which involve fantastical beings and sci-fi creatures, this is... Uh, just a regular community and they happen to be watching the movie The Magnificent Seven and one of the young women in the audience is inspired to travel north to find seven protectors to defend their community and so you follow her journey from the small town of Tres Camarones and she heads north for what she thinks is one reason and she discovers herself along the way so it's quite the quest Great, thank you um, so, um, Veronica, you're familiar with a little bit of Urea's personal history, and I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the lenses that you feel he may have been writing from in the novel, or some things that you think that we should be keeping in mind as we're thinking about what we're reading or what we've already read. Well, I think for those who uh, haven't read the novel yet, I think just as with any book, you are going to look at the year that it was published, read a little bit about the author, and just try to get the context of it. And I think in that regard, um, you know, Luis Alberto Urea, he, his father was a diplomat uh, in Mexico, or maybe not a diplomat, but a government uh, functionary, so had a good job, probably middle class. And um, so we're seeing this through the eyes of somebody who is Mexican, uh, Mexican-American, but probably, uh, you know, more educated, more middle class. And, and it's his perspective. And, um, and also that it was written in 2009 when uh, the, this country was a little more optimistic in terms of immigration. I mean, so much has changed in the past 10 years. But back then, if you remember, it was one year after the election of Barack Obama's president, and people were thinking that immigration reform was right around the corner. So this book is very light-hearted. It's got a light touch to it, to the extent that there's anything difficult, and there are many difficult passages to read about uh, the way that Mexico is portrayed or some of the people there are portrayed. Um, but it's just very short, and then it moves on to other things. So it's got like a a fast pace to it, but I think for me, um, when I read a book about Mexico, uh, I'm always looking to see how is it portrayed, what are the redeeming qualities or characteristics of the country as they're portrayed, 
uh, in the book, just like in the movie, The Magnificent Seven, you know, watching that, which I love, by the way, it was in 1960, and you see how they're portraying this little Mexican village and the people, and they do it, there is some heart to it and a little soul. Um, it's not just perpetuating the stereotypes or reinforcing stereotypes, although there are some in the movie, just like there are some in the book. So I think when you're reading it, just ask yourself the question, is this perpetuating a stereotype or reinforcing a stereotype in the way that we're seeing Mexico as it's written by this amazing author who I love, by the way, um, and also the fact that his own father was a victim of a horrific crime in Mexico and was actually murdered, and how did that impact the author's portrayal of the country? And he had actually lived with his family up north in San Diego um, for most of his life. So just keeping those things in mind, I, I felt when I was reading it that maybe he was taking out a lot of his anger about certain types of people and situations in Mexico because of his lived experiences. So I guess when you read it, you're thinking about all these things, and, and maybe that will help people a little bit. Yeah. bit. Okay, thank you so much. So um, this question actually is for Vi. Um, so as we know, the genre for this book is fiction, and one purpose of fiction is to provide us a window into real phenomena, into things that are truthful, and in some cases phenomena that readers might not have experienced yet. However, you're someone who has lived at the border and has experienced immigration between Mexico and the United States. So I'm wondering if you could share with us um, some ways that your experiences might be similar or different to what Urrea presents. Um, so I'm actually originally from San Diego. Um, I moved here to Youngstown about three years ago, and I lived in Mexico and in San Diego. And um, there were several things that I saw um, that were dissimilar. I think it's because, like Veronica mentioned, um, you know, this book was written in 2009, and things have changed um, quite a bit when it comes to immigration and what it is that we think about immigration nowadays. And um, so there were a lot of... Um, the similarities because now it's a lot harder for people to cross the border. It's a lot harder for um, individuals to um, make it into the United States than it was even just 10 years ago. So I think that that's one of the things that she was mentioning. Um, Veronica was mentioning it was this very lighthearted, you know, book, and it's not necessarily. Living in Mexico and and going back and forth is not necessarily lighthearted. You have, there's a lot of very difficult things that uh, we have to deal with, and um, so I would say that there that those were some of the you know dissimilarities between the book and and what I have personally experienced from from uh, being in that area and living there. Okay. Great, thank you so much. Um, this one is for Veronica. So um, 
As you've mentioned, Orea's book was published 10 years ago and the political landscape and there have been, um, has shifted and there also have been population shifts. I'm not sure if many of our listeners know that in 2010, a year after this book was published, there was sort of a peak in Mexican immigration to the U.S. It flattened for a number of years and net migration to the United States has actually been negative since 2014, meaning more people are leaving than coming. Um, Mexico also isn't any longer the top origin country among new immigrants to the U.S. So I'm wondering if you could share with us um, how else has the immigration landscape changed since the book, particularly in our area? Well, thank you, Nicole. I think just a little bit of context. You know, we're reading a book about Mexican immigration, but the immigration issue really pertains to all kinds of countries now. And um, here in Ohio, especially, this is a state that um, we've had waves of immigrants going back to the 1800s with German, the Irish, and so on. In fact, the first newspaper published here in Ohio was uh, in in German. Um, today, the largest immigrant group in Ohio is actually Asian, not Hispanic. But still, um, it's valuable to read this, and we do know uh, that in terms of undocumented immigration, yes, it is at a net zero from Mexico. Um, 45 to 50% of undocumented people in the United States actually didn't even cross the border from Mexico, and maybe even more than that. Uh, in terms of an undocumented population, you're looking at people who overstayed their visas. That are Those are people from Asia, Russia, Canadians, especially in Ohio. We have thousands of undocumented Canadians here. But when you're looking at the policies and you're looking at the rhetoric and you're looking at how immigration is portrayed on TV and talk radio and so on, it's focused on the Mexican community. And there is so a very strong anti-Mexican sentiment right now. And we saw this in the worst way during the shootout in El pa- the massacre in El Paso, uh, which was very painful for a lot of us to see. Um, but that said, Ohio does have many, many Mexican immigrant workers because we are an agricultural state. That is one of the biggest industries in Ohio. And so if you do go out to what you call the breadbasket of Ohio out by Norwalk, Willard, Fremont, that area, you see all the farms. And those farms employ thousands and thousands of workers. And they're harvesting the tomatoes and the cilantro and the jalapenos and everything you can imagine, packaging apples, butternut squash. That is being done by the hands of our community. And, and it's been that way for many, many decades in Ohio. And yet the policies are particularly targeting this population. It's called zero tolerance right now. And there's so many new ones that remain in place, um, many, many different policies, but the overarching policy is the zero tolerance. And so as the money was allocated to the Border Patrol, to ICE, we have a Border Patrol station out in uh, Port Clinton, Ohio, that's very active, and one in Erie, um, they have been rounding up a lot of the farm workers, so many of them that um, were so busy with Ola. And it's really heartbreaking. Um, and I'll close with this, too. There was a big raid in Sandusky that everybody will remember a year ago that just kind of illustrates 
the enforcement of this population and the targeting of this population, that raid, you know, cost a few million dollars. It had about 200 agents that went after the people who are harvesting flowers at the Corso's nursery in Sandusky. But was that really a priority for our state, for our country? Were there a lot of complaints coming from the growers and the workers at that nursery? Um, it was obviously um, a big show, but it decimated it decimated countless families. So, the t- you know, we've had raids going back to the time of Woody Guthrie and so on, but um, now it's particularly bad. So from the time this book was written, and today, as you're, if you read it today, just think about around you, where are the immigrant workers in Ohio? What are they doing? Because they're everywhere doing important work, whether it's landscaping, the dairy farms, the hog farms, the flower um, harvesting places. Why are we targeting those workers? What do you feel might be some of the economic consequences, like remittances to Mexico? Does that change? Does it change the tax base in Ohio? What are some of those consequences? That's a great question, Nicole. Um, One of the things that people don't realize is as everybody's been deported out of Ohio, the farm workers and their families leaving with them, they are being replaced by temporary workers that come up with visas because this is what our members of Congress think is the solution. We're very preoccupied, like we're not going to pass immigration reform, but let's bring up legal workers from Mexico. So they have been bringing by the hundreds and hundreds of legal workers to replace the longtime workers uh, that have raised their families here. They own homes here. Uh, They've given their all to their jobs very proudly, um, showing up on time, not missing a day of work. Some of those people at the nursery at the raid had been there 15, 20 years. Those people have been replaced with the temporary visa workers who, by the way, do not pay taxes, whereas all the people who were deported and picked up in the raid did have taxes taken out of their paycheck. And if anybody has a question about that, I could explain how that works. But they pay taxes. They buy the appliances. They buy the cars and the trucks, and they want to be Americans. They want to eventually vote. They are part of the fabric of our communities, but they have been replaced by people that are just coming up here to work and go back home. There's no taxes. They will not start a business. They will not buy any appliances because they live in housing provided by the growers. And so when they get their paycheck, every penny is sent back to Mexico. So you can, if somebody was to add up every pay period in Ohio, how much leaves the state in agriculture with the workers that came in on temporary visas, it's in the millions, millions of dollars. Every pay period is... Just in one little store, I could tell you about 200000 every two weeks that gets sent to Mexico, whereas that could have been invested in our community. So we're not feeling it yet, but we will feel um, the loss of the people who were productive. They were consumers. They were producers. They had families. They are being kicked out and replaced with people just coming in and basically are one step above indentured servants. Um, and it's, it's, it's sad, you know, even for us that we work with the community, we organize the community, but when it comes to the temporary workers, uh, 
they don't want to be a part. They don't want to rock the boats because they might not get picked next year for their visa. So you can see where they might get a finger cut off or a toe cut off at work or they might burn themselves or they're not going to say anything. Oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm fine. I'll pay the bills myself because they don't want to complain. And so you see a lot of violations and abuses going on behind closed doors. We see it. But I think with the American public, they'll say, well, they're legal. We got legal workers now. But at what cost? Yeah. Okay, thanks so much for that. Vi, did you still want to chime in? Um, yes. One of the things that I wanted to mention regarding Veronica's, um, she was talking earlier about uh, the immigration and right now the cost. And I think that there's a misconception about what what is currently happening in our country regarding immigration and regarding the Hispanic um, population that's entering into the United States. I think from what I've seen personally, I'm not saying that everyone is thinking this, but from what I've seen personally, um, the people that I've spoken to seem to think that it's all Mexicans that are crossing into the border, um, through the border, into the United States, and that it is a massive amount of individuals that are also crossing into the United States. And that is just simply not true. I mean, just last week I got a call from a family of five that had escaped Israel and was now living in Trumbull County. And they were trying to get their documentation in in order. And they were a family that had escaped these horrendous, I mean, just really awful situation in Israel. And, um, and, and now they're in Trumbull County trying to make their lives. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of Hispanics the different kinds of Hispanics. It's not just Mexicans. There's a lot of Central Americans. There's a lot of people around, you know, the, the Caribbean islands. You have Puerto Ricans. It's not just, you know, Mexicans coming into the United States, although that is the case. But I think that that's one of the, one of the things that, that is important for everyone to realize that um, this issue of people fleeing countries into safer countries is worldwide, and it's not just here in the United States. You know, you see it in Greece. You see it you, wherever, where you just look at the newspaper and you can see people escaping their countries and trying to go to a place that's safer. And they're not going to make these dangerous obviously dangerous tracks just for you know just just for fun you know they make these dangerous treks because they are truly their lives are at risk they're 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 very personality just everything that they are is at risk and i think that it's important that we we, we talk about that, and I'm just glad that this book is, um, you know, available to us and so that we can read through it and actually talk more about what some of these issues are and what, what that means to us here in the Valley. Thank you so much. Um, related to that, this is for either Vi or Ver Veronica. Um, Urrea's novel asks us to think about what happens to communities and families that are left behind. 
right? The people who, who, can't, who can't migrate. Um, so based on your experiences or those of friends or family or um, clients that you've worked with, um, can you tell us a little bit about what life might be like for some families that experience um, separation due to migration? Well, thank you for asking that question because I think one of the biggest disservices that I've seen with the way immigrants are portrayed in the media overall is just very one-dimensional, almost don't even see them as human beings. And what I love about uh, what Luis Alberto Urea did with his book was he really developed the characters So you actually have these immigrants crossing the borders, but they have personalities and names, and they're distinct, and they have histories and dreams. And and so he does that really well uh, in the book, which I appreciated. Um, Because, yeah, in Mexico, a lot of times when people make the decision to come up, it's made as a family. And everybody decides, this is what we need to do. For those of us who have not experienced hunger... And I mean real hunger where you don't know if you're going to have something to eat the next day, then you might not understand the heroic, in my view, efforts of some of the family members to come up here and provide for their children, risking their lives uh, to provide for their children. And and, uh, when they get here, they do send remittances back uh, to try to support the families. And this is not unusual. This has been done for immigrants uh, going back many generations, but... Indeed, as this book portrays, back in the day, there were little villages where it was just the older women uh, because all of the men were here. When I first started working in Painesville 25 years ago, it was just men that were coming. But after Operation Gatekeeper, which was to reinforce the border and make put up more walls and so on, the men decided, wait a second, because they would always go back and forth to Mexico. The off-season at the nurseries, they would go back to Mexico. Then when the season would start up in March, they would come back across. All of that stopped with the reinforcement of the border, and they decided, you know what, we're just going to bring our families and plant our roots here because we can't make that trip back and forth anymore. So, um, So many of them did bring their families on. When I first started, there were maybe 10 kids in the local school district, at the time Hispanic kids, and now there's over 1,000. Um, and so the strengthening of the border actually caused the people to decide to stay here. So can you remind for our audience um, what era the Operation Gatekeeper took place in? Yeah, it was in the mid-90s. Mid-90s. I think it was during the Bill Clinton era. That's when you started to see a lot of the policies that were going to be painful and harmful to people, and particularly immigrants. Uh, And now, sometimes you see our elected officials trying to outdo themselves in finding ways to make the lives more difficult for the immigrants uh, in such creative ways. Like, we already know that this community can't vote can never get a driver's license, cannot get health insurance. I think Ohio wanted to pass a bill, no workman's comp if you get injured on the job. In California, if we catch you driving, you're undocumented, we can keep your car. And it's just on and on, just trying to find any way. And um, after that raid in in, um, Sandusky, 
the workers all lived in a cluster of homes, and they all had courts. The, one who weren't, the ones who were deported had court, and the bonds at the immigration court were set at five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars per person. And so you had this little cluster of farm workers who already live on the margins, who are already living impoverished, suddenly having to borrow money from family in Mexico. They were in Mexico having to mortgage houses and sell things and anywhere that people could get money to pay those bonds. And so I say it was like our government just took a big vacuum cleaner over Norwalk, Ohio's Latino community and took every last penny. You know, it was almost a million dollars. And everybody in that community now is going to be in debt for the foreseeable future. They, so now they're in a type of extreme poverty. Um, and we were very grateful for all the people that came forward to donate things, but our community prefers to work. And um, just because we didn't want to pass immigration reform, we didn't want to give a pathway, that is what was decided that needed to be done, was to pretty much decimate that population, unfortunately. So um, for the families back home, it was a lot of anguish, disbelief. Um, Suddenly family members were arriving back in Mexico, deported after many years. They were happy to see each other, but they realized we're not going to get that income anymore. What are we going to do? What are we going to do with the children? They were born in the U.S. Now they're here in Mexico. We have kids there from Ohio in Mexico right now that have not been to school in over a year um, because they don't know how to do it. And these are U.S. citizens that will not get an education, and then they're going to eventually come back here. And there's many, many repercussions, too many to name. Yeah, tonight, but so I believe that um, it is now time for Q and A from the audience. Open discussion. Uh, good evening. Uh, one of the points that's made these days is we have to um, straighten out what's going on in Central America in terms of the violence and the gangs, and um, in order to cut the problem of people coming here off at the root, but. I just wanted to see if you agreed with me. In order to do that, we'd have to work with governments that are very corrupt to make sure the money gets down to where it's supposed to be. We would almost need some, uh, something like a very well-guarded Peace Corps in order to uh, help the people build themselves from the bottom up. I, I would agree with that. Um, there has to be more work done, obviously, in Central America and Mexico, reducing crime reducing corruption. In order to do that, though, our government has to be a government of ideas, a government that likes to collaborate and not just, like, be ham-handed and, you know, authoritative on everything. Um, It takes diplomacy. It takes negotiating. It takes having a team here. And we have so many great uh, people in our Latino community in the United States who could help you know, with programs and things like that, but they are not utilized. They're not utilized in the media and government and, and really anything. We're, we're kind of like kicked to the curb. We're seen as a nuisance. Um, and so I think that our government here should connect and collaborate more with the Hispanic community to find solutions to address those serious challenges and thereby uh, reduce, you know, 
all the children and families that are coming north because it's very painful to see what they're going through right now. But I would, I would agree, Michael. Mm -hmm. I have just a general question. The folks who were all arrested and, and sent away were deported from Sandusky recently. What should they have done, or how could they have stayed permanently? Because apparently that's what their desire was. Well, I think uh, through an act of Congress is what it would have taken. Um, a lot of people would said after the two raids, because we had one in Norwalk, one in uh, Salem, Ohio, not too far from here, um, people said, well, why didn't they just get legal? As if it was just paperwork that they didn't want to do, but it's not that simple for the vast majority of the people who are here. They need an act of Congress, a bill that will create that pathway they can put criteria in, no criminal record, paid your taxes, whatever, XXX, and then people meet the criteria, create that pathway, because right now uh, everybody is just very vulnerable, sitting ducks, and the solution has been to round everybody up, build more prisons, and separate families, and take all the money from the people that we can, and it's not a very good solution. We all know and understand that these people are here illegally, and it is illegal for um, people to be here without documentation. And we are all aware of that. You know, we want our citizens here in the United States to be documented, and that's important to us as United States citizens. But what's also important, I think, for us as the American population that we are is that we maintain things at a humanitarian level. And so we need to come together to figure out a solution as to how to assist these individuals that are currently in country um, and uh, help them to be able to become either legally documented or, um, you know, assist them in some other ways. At this point, any individual that's looking for assistance with Catholic charities or with community legal aid, wherever they, it is that they can go, because there are no finances, they, they don't have the money for attorneys, they, they, they have no options. Um, in Salem, I've been down to Salem a couple of times with Guatemalans, and they, I had a gentleman that had spent $5,000 in the last three years to try and become documented, and in the end, he believes that they are not going to allow him to stay within, in the United States, and he's He's just heartbroken about that because he's worked so hard throughout his life to while being here and also as he left. So there are a lot of issues that, that immigration brings up, a lot of legal issues and a lot of humanitarian issues. And I think that we need to um, come together to figure out how to be able to address both of those issues at the same time. Hi, thank you very much for being here. My question is this, you were talking about the agricultural industry, um, and I think they're the major component, a lot of money handed to the farm workers, um, or to the farm owners, I should say. With them um, 
sending back the so-called illegal farm workers, um, like in Sandusky and in Salem, and bringing in the short-term legal workers, how do you feel that this will impact the average consumer with this? Um, do they feel that this is going to be less money going into the grocery stores, or do you feel that that would be a long-term effect, a trickle-down effect being more money that the average consumer would pay, but they're not going to realize that yet? Well, it'll affect different ways. First of all, the whole system of bringing in the short-term visa workers is very, very expensive, and it's not sustainable and not even available for many of the smaller family-owned farms and so forth. You're talking thousands and thousands of dollars just to bring in one person. And so, um, and then all the regulations and all the things that you have to go through, um, a lot of people just throw up their hands. And on top of that, there's a cap. So there's a, the, there's a limit to the number that are allowed. So there's just not enough um, at all to go around. So, yes, uh, what's, and this is already happening where the farms are consolidating or they're just shutting down completely. I've seen, you know, and obviously Northeast Ohio was the nursery capital of the world at one time. You could go to the Smithsonian and you see the artistic seed catalogs from the 1800s that came out of Ohio. We were shipping all over the world. And it's just shrunk down so much to almost nothing. All the rose producers are gone, and um, the nurseries that were in Lake County have all consolidated. Um, so you're already seeing those changes. And um, with our fruits and vegetables, they're going to be coming from Latin America. So whereas before you would see your butternut squash, it would say Willard, Ohio. And you knew that that was Mexican or Central American hands that picked it. Now you're going to see from Chile, from Mexico, from other countries. So, and yes, it will be more expensive. And then if our government is putting tariffs on things. And so I do believe that um, for the average American consumer, not just in the produce and the nursery stock, but also, um, you know, landscaping and all these other industries, the, what you call the complementary industry. So if you don't have the workers that are out there with the shovel digging up the rhododendrons to fill orders every day, then you're not going to have the people working in the front office. You can't have the delivery drivers. You can't have the factory that makes the buckets to put the plants in. It's all contingent upon having those workers. So it actually affects a lot of industries. And, um, and not to mention, you know, the, the families that I know who work in the fields who are undocumented, they love America. They want to have the latest truck. They want to have the latest car. They want to work and have the big screen TV. Um, we've just taken away a huge customer base. So that will affect the companies that produce the cars. When we've deported a million people, those could have been people that would have had cars. They're driving their cars to Mexico or they're selling them here. If you go down to Texas... Uh, border, you'll see just used car lots to eternity of all the people who just left their cars here when they went back. So, yeah, it's definitely going to impact us. It is impacting us already. Hi. Okay, my question is, what happens to the farm owners um, that hire illegal immigrants? Do they get fined? Do they go, make do jail time, like these people are paying the price for being quote-unquote illegal, what are the people who are hiring them paying? Well, great question. Um, in my 
25 years of doing this work and the countless raids and people arrested, the workers, I have never seen the owner ever get a criminal charge, get any kind of fine uh, ever. The only time I've seen it is when the raid is done in a Mexican restaurant or an Asian restaurant. In that case, as I've seen, the owners actually go to jail. But the other way around, it doesn't happen. Um, and maybe, you know, it's because we don't have any political power. You know, when you think about growers, they do have their lobby groups. They have their local lobby groups. They have the statewide and then the national. These are some of the most powerful lobby groups. We don't have that. So um, there's a lot of politics in it. Uh, there are lobbyists who are pushing for the laws to be harsh against the workers because they want, they're working for the private prisons. The private prisons pay dividends to shareholders based on how many people they could have in there. And so they work in partnership with Congress, law enforcement, and try to keep those prisons filled, including right here in Youngstown. Perfect example. It was viewed as an economic development project. And we probably get 40 to 50 calls a week from the prison of desperate people uh, who are in there. So it's, uh, it's a money-making operation, not just the money that comes out of this immigrant who is with a shovel digging up trees day in and day out. But if he gets picked up, the jail can bill the government $75 a day per day that they're there to get reimbursed. The judge at the immigration court can charge a bond. The immigration attorney can charge her his fees. And then it just goes from there. I mean, the money that they're able to get out of this, the fees to do the applications. If you're picking tomatoes in Florida or Virginia and you're still getting 40 cents a 32-pound bucket of tomatoes, you get 40 cents. At the end of the day, you cash in your 40-cent tickets, depending on how many buckets you pick. But if the fee to apply for citizenship is over $1,000 for the application, and then the lawyer's fees and so on, how many tomatoes do you have to pick to be able to afford that? And um, just as Vi said, you know, a lot of people, they put their entire family savings uh, to try to do this. But if you think of the BMW or the VA and some of the bureaucracies that you have to go through, times a thousand, that's immigration. So obviously this is all like so heartbreaking. Um, and like you were just saying, all these people have so much power. Um, and the problem seems so complex. So most of us aren't lobbyists and we're not politicians. What can we do, in your opinion, to help make this better locally and as a country? Uh, well, to me, I think, first of all, everybody should be registered to vote. Everybody should be informed voters. Be aware and you're, you know, I commend everybody for coming here and wanting to learn. I think it is so cool that people would actually make effort to come out and learn about these issues and then um, contact your member of Congress, our senators, and keep pushing, keep making calls, writing letters. Really, that's the only way. Um, 
it's the only way right now that we're going to be able to address this and and help ourselves and by helping the this population believe me we're actually helping our communities because we're going to see so many more empty houses than we've already than we already have you know because who's who's not going to fill the houses if not immigrants with their families that's how it's always been also, um, something else that can be done to assist is is volunteer work. Volunteer work in um, just in the community. Volunteer work in the churches and places like Catholic charities. Um, I can tell you from my own perspective that um, in just two months, um, I've been inundated with. Um, Hispanics, and I'm I'm talking about uh, Puerto Ricans here that are United States citizens um, that have needed um, assistance in one way or another. Just being able to um, read documentation, being able to apply for housing, being able to talk to their landlords, being able to talk to their social security disability representative um, because their representative doesn't speak Spanish, getting all of those documentations transferred, you know, or translated into Spanish, being sent to them, just calling the school to see what the bus route is going to be for their grandchildren. Um, there, there's, there's just a lot of, um, if you think about it, you place yourself in, in a completely different and alien environment and where you cannot read um, what it is that's around you. You don't know the rules. You don't know, you really, you don't know anything. And it's scary because you come from a place in where you cannot trust your government. You cannot trust um, the police. You cannot trust. You're not sure if when you get in trouble or something happens, you're not sure if you should call the police or not because they might make it worse. So they come, you come from that area and then you're placed in a completely alien environment. And so obviously where, you know, even the Puerto Ricans who, like I said, are United States citizens, they are not undocumented individuals, have difficulty with these kinds of things. I had a Puerto Rican just about a month ago ask me, um, worried that um, the United States would let them go as a U.S. territory because of the... Um, because of the the kind of ideas and what's going on in our country at this time, she comes up to me and tells me, is it possible? How, how would that work if, if we were no longer U.S. citizens? Would we, what would we, what, we've always been U.S. citizens, you know, and, and some of them, it's, it's just, it's crazy. So, um, you know, always volunteer work um, would be great. You know, there's always help that is needed in, in, in our areas. Thank you. Why would you say that, especially in your area of work, that there's a need for bilingual volunteers? Yes. Okay. So we do not have any bilingual um, people. I had a, a woman from Puerto Rico that needed a psychiatrist, and she needed, she needed to 
be on medication, and she felt very uncomfortable with an interpreter, and she couldn't, um, we couldn't find a psychiatrist that spoke Spanish for her. And for me personally, that's kind of just out of this world because I come from San Diego where it's a very diverse area. So I worked really hard with a lot of different agencies to try and help this woman. But in the end, because I was working with her, she trusted me enough in where she said, you can be my my interpreter, and so I went to and 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 helped her to to get medication. So it's it's we do need people that speak you know different languages. Hi, I wanted to go back to the book, uh, which I haven't read, but um, in the past for many many years, uh, some people in the United States have exaggerated uh, the the positive aspects of migrating to this country or have exaggerated the opportunities in this country. And I think a lot of people have migrated and maybe regretted their decision in very different contexts. Um, Again, because there was some information that was exaggerated or distorted on the part of people who stood to gain from immigration. Um, And I was wondering if you thought that this book participates in that trend uh, to any significant degree or if migrant literature in general is maybe perpetuating um, the situation where perhaps some people are encouraged to migrate when it's really not the best thing for them or when someone else stands to gain more than the migrants do? No, the book does not do that at all. In fact, uh, you know, without revealing it, but uh, no, it definitely does not. It's called Into the Beautiful North, and it talks about shiny America, but um, you'll see that, uh, you know, there are many disappointments and, um, and in fact, when we talk about, you know, is literature or are people portraying America as a land of opportunity? Well, yes, we always have portrayed America as the land of opportunity. But when you're talking about the little villages like Tres Camarones or even some of the villages in Guatemala where many of the workers came from or many of the people who are coming from Central America, there's no TV, there's no literature, so to speak, uh, in in Spanish, even you know, if you're speaking an indigenous language that still doesn't use the word computer, you can't even find that in the language. What there is is a tradition that is passed down for many, many decades. It's in our music. It's in the tales. It's in the you know the corridos we call them, the ballads that people sing about going to the north and you know meeting a senorita or you know getting a job or whatever so no there's nobody that's out there that's publishing magazines saying hey come to the united states all these great things going on we are there the united states is there with the coca-cola with the music with um you know all of our culture and the people do adopt that and it sparks an interest yes but i can tell you when people get here um especially now with this remain in place and they're realizing they're going to end up in detention. Uh, no, it's, it's shocking. Um, it's not the land of opportunity that it was portrayed to be for them. Um, so, no, it's more just uh, word of mouth tradition, but, you know, things in their mind that they've heard over the years, like, let's go to the north. They don't know anything about where they're actually going or what they're going to find. From my understanding, um, with um, I'm not sure exactly what exaggeration 
um, means in the stories that they tell. But having lived in Mexico and having gone through some of the things that I've gone through and some of the things that my family still goes through today to this day, I can tell you as we sit here that... um, even with all of the issues that the United States has politically, what it, however, all of these issues that you have a problem with, I can tell you that as we sit here right now, we are blessed. Um, it is just a huge difference. There is not even a scale in which I could give you how that difference is. And unless you actually travel to one of these third world countries um, that, that have these kinds of lives and experiences, um, I don't think that there's a way to truly absorb that information. So for them traveling and they are an oral culture which means they ha- they they just speak to each other and they say hey you know what i have um you know a friend of an uncle of an uncle of a cousin and they just go on and say that went and he's actually making some money he's making a little bit of money and he can pay his rent he can he can pay the rent today and so and and he's okay he's eating at least one meal a day so in saying that they're like wow you know this is awesome you know you're, there's work there's work to be had and i can actually make and make and feed my kids maybe educate them because it's so difficult to educate your children down there and so with having you know doing that that's how they 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 come to these ideas and then they get desperate enough hungry enough um and where they say we we do something right now or or we just die here like and i'm sorry but but like dogs you know and and that's how that's how a lot of my family has has seen that, you know, with no assistance, you know, and so, yeah, thank I you. I would like to say, um, you know, and I struggle with this because I do go to Mexico a lot, and I actually have lots of my family there that are living their lives. There's obviously millions of people living in Mexico that are not wanting to come up here. You have artists, you have intellectuals, you have museums, you have writers, you have such a thriving history and culture, and it's just beautiful in so many ways. So when I'm reading this book or when I'm hearing portrayals, um, you know, please keep in mind that these are personal experiences of individuals. We have poverty, abject poverty here in the United States as well. Mexico has many issues and challenges, but it gives us so much, you know, it gives us so much. The music, just the number of genres, the indigenous groups, the the food, you know, if you look at uh, the Magnificent Seven, when I always looking to see, okay, well, how are they going to portray Mexico? There's a scene where they're all sitting around the table and they're like, mm, these enchiladas are great. They have great food here. And there's another scene where they're showing a fiesta and there's actually what they call the Yaki Deer Dance. I was really surprised to see that there. The, the Native Americans, indigenous people who live in the Sonoran Desert in Mexico and one of their traditions was portrayed there in one of my favorite scenes in that film. So as you're reading this book, as you're watching things, just... Remember, this Mexico, Latin America has so many beautiful things, starting with the people. 
and um, to the and and there's so many individual people. And yes, they have challenges, but um, I always struggle with it because sometimes I'm on panels where people are saying, you know, Mexico, Latin America is horrible. The people just have to go north because it's just so bad. Well, I was just there two months ago. I had the best time. I had the best time climbing the pyramids, you know, staying in a completely immaculately clean brand new hotel for $50 a night. I mean, eating the most incredible meals, meeting wonderful people. And by the way, the plane was full of people. Americans going to Cancun. So um, that's kind of like the dichotomy there that, you know, the people who live in the villages and are experiencing the poverty where there might be a job, but the pay is going to be $30 a week, um, $50 a week tops, then they make the decision, let's try for something better and go up north. And um, depending on how remote their villages or whether they're coming from a city, that is just, uh, you know, some parts of Mexico City are, are very uh, difficult. So, yes, it's, it's complicated. It's complex. So let's not stereotype, um, you know, I just want to make that point. Um, the people are lovely, and I've been so privileged to work with this community. Uh, they've taught me and given me so much more, I think, than what I've given to this community. And yes, I work with the undocumented population and have done so for 25 years. So, um, you know, I think they're an asset, not a problem. Thanks. Hello. Oh, last, I think as we get to the end of uh, this forum, I'm always um, curious as what you want us to walk away from this experience with. So starting with maybe the um, Aaron from the library about what other readings or what other source material you might think that might be helpful to us to understand this topic and maybe the others too that if there's some must-reads on this topic that we should walk away with um, <clears throat> this event having read. The reason why we wanted to do a big read program is because we wanted to see events like tonight where communities are engaging in conversations and we're feeling connected because we're all sharing in the same book. And, you know, we're hoping that you'll take away from this an opportunity to read the book and maybe you'll run into somebody at the grocery store or somebody at your church or somebody at your public library that you've never talked to before, but you see them reading the book and you'll sit down and you'll engage in conversation with them and we'll build a more connected community that inspires and enriches other people to do the same. And we've got a host of programs going on throughout September and October to celebrate this book and to try and bring our community together. So we hope that you'll stop by one of those events. You can find out more on our library website at um, libraryvisit.org slash programs and we just we hope that you'll join the conversation and that you'll continue to be connected and involved the way you have been tonight thank you so much. that concludes our program for this evening thank you for being here